Well, we have been talking about great pictures of faith, and we've been looking at some amazing images that have been given to us in the life of Elisha. We're almost at the end of Elisha's life. It's uh, amazing to think about that as much as we've seen in him that his time uh, in this book is coming to a close. One of the things that we've seen with Elisha that has been interesting is uh, we have noted that sometimes these miracles and these activities seem out of place. They almost are like a one-off. And it's hard to sometimes see, well, what does that have to do uh, with the surrounding text? And, and that's going to be somewhat true here as well, is that we're going to see this curious scene that, that involves Elisha and his servant. And then the text is going to go on about a number of kings and a number of deaths. And we've got to try to figure out. Well, what does all this have to do? What is God trying to teach Israel? And what is the key picture of faith for us? So we're going to talk about being zealous for God in 2 Kings chapters 8 through 10. If you have your Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 8 is where we begin. Uh, it is As chapter 8 opens, it is interesting to see that uh, we are told uh, about a curious circumstance that before this famine had taken place, that Elisha had instructed uh, the Shunammite woman to go live somewhere else during the time of the famine. Now, we saw the Shunammite woman back in chapter 4. She was the one who was providing for Elisha as he traveled to the point that she even was willing to uh, make a room for Elisha to stay in. But you might remember her more, more notably in that Elisha makes a promise to her that she's going to have a son. She does have the son, but then the son suddenly dies. And when the husband asks her, it, it, is all well, you know, what's going on? Why are you going to go see Elisha? She just simply says, all is well. When Gehazi runs to find out what's the matter, she says, all is well. She has this great faith that if she can just get to the man of God, everything is going to be fine. We're told here at the beginning of, of chapter 8 that she and her household, they had lived somewhere else uh, during the time of the famine. The famine was seven years, according to verse 1. That's a stunning amount of time for the, the horrors of what was going on in Samaria and in the land uh, of Israel. But she goes and lives there for a while. And we're told in verse 3 that after the seven years, she returns from the land of the Philistines and she is going to approach the king of Israel and she's going to ask for her home and for her property back. We get the implication that it's been confiscated. Somebody's taken over the land. Something has happened where they have lost the property that is rightfully theirs while they've been gone these seven years. But here is this great, can I put in quotation, coincidence. While she is coming to the king of Israel to go plead for her land and for her home to be restored to her household, it just so happens that Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, happens to be there before the king of Israel telling him about her and how Elisha had raised her son from the dead. You can just imagine this whole thing going on as the servant is, is telling the, the king of Israel, yes, and we had this woman and 
you know, promised that she was going to have a son. And then she had a son and then the son died. And then Elisha raised the son from the dead. And oh, by the way, there she is right there. And she comes walking in to make her plea to be able to ha- have have this land back. And so, of course, this is, is an amazing moment. And we are told in verse six, after speaking to the woman and she told him all that that he that the Elisha's servant has said. So it's in the middle of verse six. The king said, restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. And so really interesting that you have this this statement made by the king that I think is the, the functional point of where these chapters are going is the king says, I want you to restore to her her land and her property and her home and all of the income and the produce that would have been lost over the last seven years. Basically, whatever has been lost, whatever she has not been able to obtain, whatever is rightfully hers, seven years have gone by. I want you to restore all of it back to her. Now, as we've talked about, sometimes these same things in the scriptures seem like this one off and you kind of go, OK, well, that's really interesting and all that. But I think this this message plays a pivotal role in what's going to happen over these next few chapters in regards to the, the movements of Israel and Judah and what God is trying to teach about restoration. So hold that idea in your mind and let's move forward in the account and see some of the things that happens next. In, in verse 7, we're told that Elisha goes to Damascus. That in and of itself should be fascinating. And Elisha's just not going to stay in Israel trying to deal with Israel and all of their wickedness. He's, he's reaching out and trying to teach the lost. And just as you can see that happening with the servant talking to the king of Israel about, about the, the raising of the widow's son, which you think in your mind, why was the servant there talking to the king of Israel about the widow's son? Except God hasn't given up and tried to teach that guy. Hey, that Elisha guy, he raised the son from the dead. Maybe you should follow him. Maybe you should listen to him. Doesn't seem like that's working. Elisha goes to Damascus. Now, the king of Syria, he finds out that Elisha is in Damascus. And what is interesting about that is it turns out that the king of Syria has become quite ill. And so he sends message to Elisha and wanting to find out if he's going to recover from this illness. This might sound rather familiar to you to 2 Kings chapter 1, where that happened with the king of Israel with Amaziah, and he had fallen ill and wants to find out if he's going to survive or not with Elijah, and that's when Elijah uh, says no, uh, because he's a wicked man and may fire come down from heaven if I'm a man of God. So you have now Elisha doing a similar thing, looking a lot like Elijah, and the messenger is Hazael, and, and notice what happens when when Hazael comes and asks this at the end of verse 9, shall I recover from this sickness? This is what Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, wants to hear. Look at verse 10. And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. And then he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed and the man of God wept. Now, if you stop right there, you go, that might be the strangest thing we've seen a prophet do yet. His messenger comes and says, okay, is, is the king going to live? 
And Elisha says, he's, he's going to recover, but he's going to die. And then he just stares at the guy. You know that uncomfortable stare where you just keep staring? I could try that with you for a minute. You just keep staring and staring and staring at somebody until they finally kind of wiggle a little bit and become ashamed and embarrassed. That's what happens at this moment. And then to the point that Elisha begins to break down and and weep. And the reason why is because he is described in verse 12 and verse 13 as he asks, well, why are you weeping? Because I know the evil that's in your heart and essentially what you are going to do to Israel because you're going to be the next king of Syria and you're going to cause all kinds of terrible things to happen to the people of Israel. And so you wonder, well, why would Elisha tell something that doesn't sound true? Why would you say to Hezael, the king is going to recover, but he's certainly going to die? Well, notice what happens. Verse 14, when he returns, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. But verse 15, the next day he took a bedcloth, dipped it in water, and spread it over his face until he died. And Hezael became king in his place. You can just kind of see that Elisha was staring into the soul of Hezael at that moment. The king's going to recover, but I know why he's not going to make it. You're going to do something. And so Hezael now takes over, and he is going to be the instrument that God is going to use to bring about all kinds of judgment. You would expect the text to continue with that. But notice in, in verse 16, there's a dramatic shift that happens. And all of a sudden we are paying attention to the nation of Judah. Now, this is where things get really tough when you start talking about the nation of Judah. And now the focus returns to it. As you'll notice in verse 16, we're told that we have a king of Israel and a king of Judah, and they're both called Jehoram. So that really helps a lot when you're trying to keep track of names. And you've wondered why it's so hard for you to remember who's who. Sometimes they end up being the same names at the same time and that are reigning. And so your translation may have one calling them Joram and Jehoram to try to help you keep track of who we're talking about. But at the same time, we have a king in Israel and a king in Judah. They're both Jehoram at that time. But the whole message of what you're going to see is that Judah is just as equally worthy of judgment. We've been paying attention to Elisha and how he's trying to teach Israel and have them come back because of their sinning. And Israel is not listening at all. They're rejecting God completely. Is it going any better in the south? Well, notice this King Jehoram, and we are told that he is the son of Jehoshaphat. Remember, Jehoshaphat's a pretty good king. But we're told in verse 18 that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab have done. Now watch the reasoning why. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You remember we were talking with, about Jehoshaphat. We kept wondering, why does Jehoshaphat keep helping out Ahab and Ahab's sons? Why does he keep going up there and committing himself to all of these horrible battles that are not wise to go into? Why not just leave him alone? And now we're told finally what has happened is that Jehoshaphat's son has married Ahab's daughter. 
And this is going to be a very big problem. And I think this is so important to see because you notice that verse 18 says that he now does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He is just like the house of Ahab. The house of Ahab is horrible, worthy of judgment. That's the trajectory of where this text is going, is that judgment is is going to come. And yet notice verse 19. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. For the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. I want you to see that point. Why is Judah going to continue forward when Israel is going to be soon destroyed? It's not because Judah's any better. And it's not because as I grew up, oh, well, they had more good kings. That's not even told to us that was it either. They're just as bad. There's only one reason. God made a promise to David. And God always keeps his promises. And he said that there was going to still be a lamp in Jerusalem, still be a lamp for David. And so that's exactly what happens. And the rest of that section from verse 20 to verse 24 is just a picture of just as Israel is disintegrating and losing the surrounding nations and power that it had. So Judah is as well. Edom rebels against Judah in his days in verse 20, and they're unable to maintain that power anymore. God is causing both northern nation and southern nation to recede because of their wickedness. His son after Jehoram, not any better in verse 25. He also takes over. He lasts only a year. He's not any better, though, as we're told in verse 27. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. As the house of Ahab had done, for he was the son-in-law to the house of Ahab. It is a total mess. And now you see the southern nation is called just as bad as Ahab. Just as bad as Ahab's house, the wickedness is just as bad. So keep that in mind because that sets up everything to what's about to take place. In chapter 9, verse 1, God says, all right. It's time to execute judgment. It's finally judgment time. And to continue the confusion, God raises up a man named Jehu. This is not Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, but this is a different Jehu altogether. But I want you to notice what the messenger who is sent from Elisha tells him as he goes to Jehu. And he says in verse 6, So he arose and went to the house, and the young man poured oil on Jehu's head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond and free in Israel, and I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, and the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. And then he opened the door. And ran. All right. Big picture that's given here. Jehu's told, here's your mission. You're now going to be the next king over Israel. And here's what I want you to do. Wipe out all of Ahab's house. It is time for vengeance. I want you to destroy everyone who is a part of Ahab's house 
in any way, shape, or form. And the rest of chapter 9 and the rest of chapter 10 go about describing all that happens. Uh, one of my favorite scenes that you might ever have uh, in Old Testament scripture, this is a beautiful one. So Jehu is ready to do this. Jehu is going to deal with with these these kings and deal with the wickedness of Ahab's house finally. It just so happens that Jehoram, the, the, the king of Israel, keep our Jehorams correct here, but we have Jehoram, the king of Israel, the son of Ahab. He's uh, been wounded and Amaziah has gone up to visit him to see how he's doing. And it's at this time that Jehu is now going to execute his vengeance. And so here comes Jehu and here comes his army and here comes his chariots. And he's approaching into the area of Jezreel. And you can imagine there's a little bit of concern. So the king sent a messenger to find out who is this army that's coming. And so the messenger is sent out to Jehu as they see this company coming. And so this messenger goes out in verse 18 and asks the question, Thus says the king, is it peace? You you can just imagine this. You can see an army coming. You send a messenger out and find out, you know, what's your purpose? Are you coming in peace? Look at Jehu's answer. Verse verse 18. What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Basically, what kind of peace has been around here for this wicked nation? And the messenger does and joins Jehu. You can imagine the army keeps coming. Kings go, we need to find out what this is. They said, we saw the messenger talk to him, but now he's riding with him. So they send another messenger. And the second messenger does the exact same thing and asks, verse 19, is it peace? And the same answer by Jehu, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And he does the same thing. And so they're trying to figure out, well, who is coming at him? And I love verse 20. And so the watchman reported, he reached them also, but he's not coming back. But the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. I just try to visualize how did Jehu drive that when you saw him coming, everybody goes, well, I'm not sure who it is, but he sure does ride a chariot like Jehu. <laughs> he rides that thing like a maniac. Well, however he comes. They finally go, it must be Jehu the way he's bringing these men and running that chariot. And so the two kings now go out to meet to meet Jehu and they want to know, is it peace that, that is going to happen? So that's what they ask in, ver, in verse 22. They say to him, is it peace, Jehu? Listen to his answer. He answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Basically, your time is done. Your wickedness is now going to be judged. How can there be peace when you guys are perpetuating the evil that was began with Ahab and Jezebel? And so they turn around and yell treason and treachery in verse 23. And Jehu draws the bow. He kills Jehoram first. And what's important about what is noted here is in verse 25, after he kills the king of Israel, Jehoram, we're told there, he says, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground that belongs to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, and how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday, 
the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Jehu goes, I'm the one who's been told by God to administer justice. So take his body and put it on the very place where Naboth had been slaughtered because Ahab wanted that vineyard. Remember that many, many, many chapters ago, back in first Kings, long time ago at this point. But now judgment has finally come. And not only that, we see the king of Judah, Ahaziah, in verse 27, he is killed also. And I put that in the same category. He's aligned with the house of Ahab. He's married the daughter of, of Ahab and is just as wicked as the house of Ahab. Judgment comes upon him. That continues in verse 30. Jehu comes to Jezreel. In verse 30, Jezebel heard about it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window as Jehu entered the gate and said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Best line ever. All right. You hang your head out the window and you call Jehu Zimri. Remember who Zimri was? Zimri was an assassin who usurped the throne to take the kingship away. And he only lasted seven days. So this is what Jezebel saying. Oh, hey, treacherous traitor. Have you come to take the, the kingship like Zimri did? You're only going to last seven days by doing so. So yeah, what a great line that she spits out, you know, gets all dolled up and, and, and looks at him and goes, Hey, Zimri, you murderer of your master. Is that, is that you? Jehu's response, is there anybody up there on my side? Anybody up there who, 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 who belongs with me? Who, who is on my side with this? And it says two or three eunuchs look out the window. They kind of, you know, we're on your side. Yeah, we're with you. And Jehu says, throw her down. So the eunuchs grab her and throw her out the window. Notice what happens in verse 33. The text wants to be explicit, so you got to see it. Verse 33, so they threw her down and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. And then he went in to eat and drink. That's stunning right there. You know, throw her down. She splatters on the wall and he kind of goes all in a day's work and goes and sits down and has a meal. You know, not bothered by that in the slightest. And then turns around and says, now we, we need to make sure uh, that we bury her. Go get the body. But in verse 35, when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than her skull and her feet and the palms of her hands. And when they came back and told him, he said, this is what the word of the Lord was, which he spoke by the servant Elijah the Tishbite in the territory of Jezreel. The dogs will eat the flesh of Jezebel and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel so that no one can say this is Jezebel. Are you noticing something? Here is God bringing vengeance. Here is God righting the wrongs. Here is God coming and saying, I'm going to finally take care of this. And Jehu keeps noting that when the king dies, that's what God said. When Jezebel dies, well, that's also what God said. Jehu's not done. Remember, he's told that he's got to kill all of Ahab's house. Chapter 10 continues the picture as well. Ahab has 70 sons. Short story. He kills them all. He gets all of them dead as well, according to the word of the Lord, as he was told to do also. What I want to zero in on is something that he says in verse 16 as he's accomplished this. And he says, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And so he had this this man 
Jonadab ride with him. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So here Jehu fulfills everything that the Lord had promised. Final section from verse 18 to verse 27. He then goes and strikes down all the prophets of Baal. Beautiful way that he does this. He says, hey, I want to gather all the, the, the priests and the prophets of Baal. Let's all get them together. Put them in the temple. It's going to be great. Get them all there. Make sure none of the real prophets are there. Just we want only Baal prophets. Sounds like he's going to be on their side and they're going to have a great worship service and all that. Gets them all in the place and then has them all killed. And beautiful what Jehu does. Now, all of that put together, you go, now that just seems like random story and narrative, but what is God trying to teach on this? And I think there are two big things that I want for us to focus on that we'll spend our time considering. One of the things that is coming up in this text, as we've noted as we've, we've told this narrative and observed the account, is that Here are the days of vengeance that God had promised, even all the way back in the days of Elijah, now finally coming to pass. All of these prophetic judgments are all piling up, and we've been waiting for this moment where Ahab and Jezebel and the whole house of Ahab and the prophets of Baal would all finally be dealt with. And it took years for that all to finally happen. And I want us to stop and consider, why did it take so long to deal with this wickedness? Why take so long to deal with the 70 sons of Ahab? Why did it take so long when it came to Jezebel? Why did it take so long with the prophets of Baal? And I want to refresh your memory on something. And you turn back just a few pages to 1 Kings. I want you to go back to 1 Kings 21. And in 1 Kings 21 and verse 20, you might remember that you have Ahab talking to Elijah. And Ahab, as he talks to Elijah, says, you you found me, oh, my enemy. And, and, And Elijah says, I found you because you've sold yourself to do evil and pronounces the judgment in verse 21. Look at verse 21 of 1 Kings 21. Behold, I will bring disaster on you. And I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off from Ahab, every, from Ahab, every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Elijah comes and makes that proclamation. Because you've sold yourself to do evil, you and your house and your sons and your wife are all going to die violent deaths. And it even confirms in verse 25, there was nobody as evil as Ahab and Jezebel. However... In verse 27, when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, 
I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring disaster on this house. Here we are all these chapters later, generations ahead. And you're asking the question, God, why is he taking so long to deal with Jezebel? And to deal with Ahab's sons and Ahab's house and to deal with all of this wickedness. And here is God's very big answer and an important truth. God's judgments can be delayed because of a present obedience. That God's judgments can be delayed because of a present obedience. The only reason all of that time was allowed to transpire was because in the moment, Ahab repented. And because he turned his heart for what appears to be a moment, but because he turned his heart, God delayed the justice. And I think that is so important for us to see on a number of levels that this is such an important truth for us because sometimes we can wonder... Why is wickedness allowed to continue? Why does God not execute his judgments? Why doesn't God do anything? Why doesn't God avenge the righteous? And I want us to see that one of the answers can be that judgment will wait when people turn back to God. That judgment can be delayed when people turn back to God. This is fitting of the character of God, the passage we know very well from 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, when God says it's not his desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And it is the amazing mercy in the character of God to say, if I can get some kind of response out of you that you might just maybe come back to me with all of your heart then I'll delay judgment a little longer. And maybe I'll get one more person. Maybe it'll be one more soul. And I'll wait just a little longer. I think that's always a confounding picture of God that you see in Luke chapter 15. As Jesus tells this parable of lost things, and he starts by talking about who among you who has a hundred sheep and you lose one doesn't leave the 99 to go find the one. And in my mind, I often read that and go 99 out of a hundred ain't bad. You know, you're doing all right. You got 99%. That's, that's a high mark. Just go ahead and keep your 99. You don't want anything else to happen. Just go ahead and okay. You got your 99. The same thing with the woman with 10 coins. She has the 10 coins and she loses one. Who doesn't search the house and turn it upside down, cleaning it, looking everywhere for the one single coin? That God is constantly trying to tell us that he's going to bring judgment. There will be justice. That there will be a restoration that is going to happen. That's going to take some time. There's going to be some waiting for that. Because any amount of a turning to him, God receives 
and allows more time for a soul to be saved. This fits what I think is happening at the beginning of chapter 8. Is here's the seven-year famine, and then after the seven years are done, everything is finally restored to her. We're living in that time right now. We don't restore all things. We aren't seeing all justice. We aren't receiving everything back to us and God righting wrongs and reversing everything and putting things back to right. That hasn't happened yet. It's going to. And to not be frustrated with the waiting. Because that's how much God wants a soul to be saved. If God would prolong a judgment and delay it on Ahab's house, there is seemingly nothing redeeming about Ahab and his household. He is described as the worst of the worst, married to the worst of the worst. And yet for a moment, if Ahab for a moment turns back to God, that pushes the clock further. And I hope that we would consider that, that that is the heart of God. And why does time continue to go on? And why do these things keep happening? And why is wickedness allowed to prolong? And why does all that happen? It's very simple. Because often the answer is that God is prolonging his judgment because there's yet another soul who's turning back to God. I think this is such an important truth and it's such an important truth and why we have to wait for the final judgment for all these things to finally be put back to right. It is a beautiful picture of God that God's judgment can be delayed because of a present obedience. We'll get to this in the Wednesday night, but I'll just put this in your mind for now. So what is the power of a praying people concerning their nation, society, and culture as God delays judgment, hoping for one more soul to be saved. That judgment can be delayed so that God can reach one more, not desiring any to perish. Second picture, and then the lesson will be yours. And it comes from Jehu. We haven't read this yet, but this is something that is interesting. Jehu takes the throne in verse 28. Very short picture is given to us about his reign. Verse 28, he wipes the bales out of Israel. But then notice in verse 29 what we're told. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. It sounds like Jehu has done everything that God has said. Verse 31. But Jehu was not careful to walk. In the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Jehu is a very interesting character study because of what is said about him. Because in his own lips, he says, I am zealous for the Lord. 
And yet by the same token, we're told he wasn't careful to walk in the ways of the Lord. And I would hope that you would think about that because that almost seems like that's a contradiction. How can it be possible for Jehu to have the zeal of the Lord on display, doing all that is in the Lord's heart, is what the text says, and yet at the very same time, not careful to do what God said, to not walk in his ways and to follow in his statutes. I think God's teaching us something very important about Jehu. Jehu was zealous for the Lord only when it was what Jehu wanted to do. Jehu was extremely zealous for God as long as it was something that Jehu wanted to do. I think that is such an important thing that is being described about him. He obeyed the command when the command fit what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill Ahab and kill Ahab's house and deal with Jezebel. He wanted to kill those prophets. That's the only reconciliation to how is he zealous for the ways of God but not walking in his ways. Well, when God's laws aligned with what he wanted to do, he was zealous. But when God's laws didn't fit what he wanted to do, like tear down those golden calves, then he wasn't so zealous. He carefully followed only what he wanted to follow. And I believe this is such an important message. It is an easy deception to believe. It is easy to think that we are zealous for God, that we are doing the will of God, that we are on God's side. But in reality, what we are doing is only obeying when we agree with what God says. We say, well, I'm zealous for God. As long as he agrees with the way I think I should live. (laughs) I'll obey God as long as I like what he commanded. You see, that's a Jehu mentality. I'll do what God says when I like what God says. I'll be zealous for his ways when I agree with his ways. But tell me to do something I don't want to do. I'm not going to do that. And it is so important for us to see that being zealous for the Lord means that we follow what God says, even if we don't want to, even if we do not understand, even if we don't like it, and even if we don't agree with it. Because God didn't ask for our opinion before he gave the rule. You see, Jehu's only zealous when he likes the command. Jesus gave a very similar warning. You may know this one pretty well. Where Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Do you see how zealous they were? They sound zealous. They're casting out demons. They're prophesying. They're doing mighty works. And God's answer was, he didn't do 
everything I asked you to do. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. You didn't follow at all. Wow. That'll be back in five minutes. I think it's so important for us to keep that in mind. There are lots of people who say they are zealous for the Lord, but they do not do what God says. There are so many people who think that they are zealous for God. They think they are saying the right things. They have all the right things on the externals. They make things look like that, but they don't do all that God has said. And I submit to you tonight, bold faith means we do everything that God says and we wait for God's restoration when the final judgment comes. We're going to do everything that God says to do. You imagine that Shunammite woman and she's told, here's what I want you to do for seven years. You're going to pick up and go live in the land of the Philistines. Don't worry about your land. Don't worry about your property. In seven years, God is going to take care of you. Make sure you get it all back. Well, you follow what God says. And that's what she does. She believes and she follows. Bold faith does everything that God says. I'll leave you with this final question. Are we zealous for everything that God has told us to do? Or are we only zealous when we agree? what God says to do. That's the message of Jehu. Are you zealous for God? Are you only zealous for God when you like it? Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, this powerful picture of the the restoration that you have entailed for us and planned for us, it's, it's unbelievable that you intend to right all wrongs to reward your servants, to give back to us all that we have lost and then some far beyond that we could ever imagine. That you have told us, Lord, that any amount of sacrifice and suffering in this life, any amount of loss in this life is worth it for what lies ahead that you have promised and in store for us. Lord, we pray that we would be the zealous people that you want us to be. And God, forgive us for when we are only zealous for the commands we like. We are only zealous for the commands that we agree with. Lord, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen our hearts to be zealous to do all that you have called us to do. That we'd be zealous in the way we deal with each other and that it would be according to your will. The way that we deal with the world, it would be according to your will. We would love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would show mercy and kindness, that we would be the fathers and husbands and mothers and wives that you've called us to be, that we would serve you in a way that is zealous for you and shows that we follow you with all of our heart and that we will follow all the words that you've said to us. Forgive us for when we fall short. And God, strengthen us to serve you far better in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you come to Jesus today. Turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And to have a zeal that is beyond the zeal of Jehu. But zealous for God for all that he says. 
all that he's told us to do. We want to help you in any way. Would you be willing to do that? Won't you come now while we stand and while we sit?